the pastor and preacher Alexander McLaren, uh, who is very highly thought of and often quoted. He said this, If our likeness to God does not show itself in all the small things, where is there left for it to show itself? For our lives are all made up of small things. The great things come, three or four of them, in 70 years. The little ones come every time the clock ticks. Just being a Christian, every tick of the clock in all the small things. Being of a proven character, 24 hours a day. That really, in many ways, is the chief feature and test for anyone who claims to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in Matthew chapter 5, as Christ's reputation is increasing across the nation of Israel, vast crowds are gathering to hear him. And many of you will know that at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, we have uh, a long stretch of teaching from the Lord Jesus. It's the longest single sermon that's recorded in any of the Gospels and has, of course, been come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount. You'll notice that it begins as an address to those who are his disciples. Seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. When he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them. So this teaching of Christ is aimed at those who are following him. And yet it seems that in the course of his teaching, uh, those vast multitudes are following close behind. And the, the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7 concludes, so it was when Jesus had ended these things, that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one having authority, not as the scribes, which says quite a bit about the kind of teaching they'd been used to. So it's particularly important to recognise that this is not an evangelistic sermon being preached to unbelievers even though many unbelievers were probably listening. And even though there are many important lessons in this sermon that you can put to unbelievers, but primarily uh, this sermon is aimed at believers, those who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's primary audience are his disciples. And these verses will bring into sharp focus what the character of a Christian ought to be what the conduct of a Christian ought to look like. It's important to remember that you cannot make yourself to be the right kind of person simply by attempting to do the right kinds of things. 
No, it's God who changes sinners and he changes us on the inside to be the right kind of people in order that we can then do the right kinds of things. He saves us for those good works that he's prepared beforehand that we should do them. God must first change who and what we are on the inside, the new birth, and then everything else flows from that. And so in these opening verses, we have what have become known as the Beatitudes. Jesus will lay down for us certain qualities of character which typify Christian people. You'll see that each of those phrases, of course, begins with the word blessed. It's not very easy to find one single word which actually, in English, does justice to what Jesus was saying. Uh, Some would suggest, well, it simply means happy, but that seems a little bit, well, it's not quite hitting the mark, is it? Happiness can be quite light and fluffy and temporary and not very easy to get hold of. What it's really speaking of is a complete rest and contentment and satisfaction of the soul. That's a better way of describing that word blessed. A a complete rest and contentment and satisfaction of the soul. It's a blessedness which needs no pleasant or comfortable circumstances because it's a blessedness which flows out of a, a man or a woman being in union with Christ. It's a blessedness which flows out of having been made right with God. And these graces, as we might call them, uh, are a considerable reflection, of course, of the character of Christ himself, in whose likeness we are being made and into whose likeness we're being transformed as the Lord's people. One of the most obvious and striking features of this list is that on the face of it, many of the Many of the qualities that are mentioned seem to be the exact opposite of what people in the world are looking for. Poverty. What on earth is Jesus thinking of? Fancy starting with that. Fancy starting with being poor. Who wants to be poor? We're constantly being reminded of the apparent poverty that millions of people are living in here in the UK and how awful that is. And how we must do everything we can to get out of poverty. Uh, Now I know the living conditions of some people can be a bit dire. Of course they don't have anything, they're not anything like the kind of conditions that previous generations have had to cope with. Nevertheless, poverty is seen as a great evil to be avoided at all costs. But Jesus puts being poor number one on the list. Who would have thought it? Meekness. Who wants to be meek in the world? It's all about being strong, being hungry, being thirsty. How do these things equate to blessedness? What on earth is Jesus talking about? And who wants to be persecuted, as we'll talk about next week? How is it that there were any people still listening to Jesus when he's finished? These all seems to be the things that 
most people spend their lives trying to run away from. Yet the people were astonished at his teaching. But we, we soon realise that, that Jesus, of course, is not talking about our physical needs. He's not talking about this physical realm even. Those things are not the priority, you see, when it comes to rest and contentment and satisfaction of the soul. And Jesus isn't talking about being poor in your pocket or in your bank account. He's talking about being poor in spirit. He's not talking about hungering and thirsting after the best cuisine, but after righteousness. It's very unlike anything many of those people had ever heard before. Happiness is not found in satisfying physical desires and comforts and appetites. Augustine famously said, you have made us for yourself, speaking to God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. This sermon is directed towards those who have found and are finding their rest in Christ. Does that describe you this morning? Because only in him is this true rest and comfort and satisfaction for the soul found. And if that doesn't describe you, if you know nothing of these things, well, I would encourage you to listen in. And perhaps by God's grace, he will begin to draw you to these things as well this morning. Now, we're going to take these Beatitudes as far as verse 9 this morning. Because these first seven qualities that Jesus talks about, and of course, seven is a number signifying completeness in the Bible. These first seven are very exclusively those inequalities and graces of character which must be seen in all who follow after Christ. From verse 10, Jesus will then go on to talk about how we ought to respond when we suffer persecution and opposition, because we most certainly will. Once you're the Lord's people, the, word, the world will be against you. And we'll consider, God willing, those verses next Sunday morning. Now these verses are also clear and distinct. I don't actually have any points one, two, three, four that are going to come up, come up on the screen this morning. We're simply going to take each verse in turn. So it's going to be very easy to follow. So if you want the points for the sermon, you just need to have your Bible open at Matthew chapter 5 and start at verse 3 and follow through with me to verse 9. And they are our points for this message this morning. Uh, one more thing before we begin. These verses are not a list of options. You know, we can't sit around in an elders meeting and I can say, well, I'll be verse 3, Eamon can be verse 5, uh, Graham makes a reasonable fist at being merciful, so it's verse 7 for him, and Steve is definitely verse 8. That's not how it works. 
these are not all different types of people being described here. This is a single person being described here. This is the one who is in Christ. This is the character of every believer. So let's look at each of these graces of character and we'll spend a few minutes in consideration of each one of them. So first of all, we're in verse 3. And so Jesus is talking about that which brings rest and contentment and satisfaction of the soul. Number one, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Being poor in spirit is to acknowledge within yourself and before God that there is no good thing in you. If you've been following our evening series in Romans, being poor in spirit means that as you read through those opening chapters of Romans, as you read through chapter 1, as Paul defines and explains what sin is, and as he talks about the fact that no one has an excuse for trying to avoid or evade the judgment of God. All are guilty before him. As he goes through those things, as your eyes fall upon the verses that we're going to be thinking about this evening in chapter 3, you know within your own soul that there can only be one response. As the Bible declares that there is none righteous, no, not one, gone is the urge to shout out, I beg to differ. When the Bible declares that the whole world is guilty before God, it seems to you that the fact that the whole world is guilty before God is kind of irrelevant right now because I am having to deal with the fact that I am guilty before God and that has just overflowed my whole soul. And there can only be one response. God, be merciful on me, a sinner, just like the tax collector in that little story that Jesus told. Paul will say in Romans chapter 7, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. That's to be poor in spirit. And he goes on, for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good? I can't find it. The fact that you are spiritually poor is one thing. But more than that is being spoken of here. The issue is that you yourself are convinced of it. And that you confess it. Rather than being in denial and protesting your innocence. When Paul speaks of us being without excuse in Romans, you find within the depth of your, old, your own soul you simply cannot disagree with him. I have no excuse. This is the sign of a broken and a contrite heart. This is the sign that pride has given way to humility. This is the sign that self has bowed in submission to the Lord Most High. And this continues to be the position of the believer. And yes, we rejoice in thanks and praise for the gospel and, the, and for that new creature that everyone becomes in Christ when they come to him in saving faith. 
But at the same time, there is that awareness that anything that is of me is of no worth and of no hope. And it's only what I have in Christ that counts. It's only my being united to him that gives me any hope at all. And I have this complete rest and contentment and satisfaction of soul. These are the ones who are of God's kingdom. Is that you this morning? Before your heavenly Father. What a glorious thing it is to be in Christ. Number two, those who mourn, verse four, for they shall be comforted. And this is not talking about earthly bereavement. It's not talking about losing loved ones. It's not talking about those who have stood at the graveside. It's talking about mourning over that sin which is now such a reality to you. Of course, this plays a huge part in repentance. Of course, full repentance also includes the turning away from that sin, not just feeling sorry. Nevertheless, this mourning over sin, not merely about the sorrow over the things I've done, but a godly sorrow over the kind of person I am, the grievance and offence that my sins have been before God. It's a mourning over our spiritual condition which drives us on to seek out that forgiveness and reconciliation which is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is said by Christ to be the comforter. He who, he who Christ and the Father sends to dwell within us, that through him Christ may reign within our hearts, that he might bring his life and his righteousness to bear upon my sinful soul and to testify to me that I now am his child. All of that comes as we mourn over our sin before God and turn to Christ. It's a mourning which, win, which begins to weep over all sin. It's a mourning which begins to grieve over all that dishonours God. And we, we find this in the Bible. There's that little letter written by Jude towards the end of the New Testament. He says this, The Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly, among them of all their ungodly deeds which they've committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And, and the Christian begins to feel that. All of this ungodliness. And why? Because it's so grievous to God. It's so grievous to your Lord and Saviour. It dishonours him, it blasphemes him. And you feel it within your own soul. We read this in Ezekiel chapter 9 at verse 4. Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem. Put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. 
this grieving over sin in the world around us. Psalm 119, rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. Weeping over the sins of the nation because it's so grievous to God, it so dishonors him. The sins of the world are mourned over, they're prayed over. To see the Lord dishonored and disregarded in such a way, it becomes grievous in the heart of the Christian. But to all such, God brings comfort. He reassures you of your eternal salvation. He reassures you of his sovereign providence over all things. He reassures you of the certainty of his righteous judgment of all sin. And he strengthens faith and he strengthens zeal in the proclaiming of the gospel because only in Christ can those who are in their sin find any hope or any release from that captivity of sin. Those who mourn will be comforted. And the meek, verse 5, they shall inherit the earth. The only proper response to these things is a full and total submission to the Lordship of Christ in your life. I, I'll produce no good thing on my own. Therefore, it must be all of him. Meekness, of course, is not to be weak and spineless, but to be humble and submissive to one another. Yet at the same time, in their meekness, Christians can be the strongest and most bold people in the whole world because of who they are in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. But meekness is, is the removal of self from the equation. That it is all of God. And I am who I am by God's grace in Christ. Not to live for myself anymore, but to live to God in Christ Jesus. In many ways, meekness is the visible outworking of being poor in spirit. It's the natural and obvious giving of yourself over to God because there's, there's nothing in me that, that's worth me trying to achieve. It's all of him. And so this is why, for example, in, in Psalms like Psalm 37, we read words such as these, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land. Feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the, the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him. You see how all the focus is off me and onto God. He shall bring it to pass. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Don't fret because of those who seem to prosper in their way. The man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger. Forsake wrath. Don't fret. Those things only cause harm. Evildoers shall be cut off. The Lord will deal with them. But those who wait on the Lord 
they shall inherit the earth. Same phrase. Yet a little while, the wicked shall be no more. You'll look for their place, but you won't find them. But the meek will inherit the earth and delight themselves in the abundance of peace. In that psalm, there's something both present and future. There's a resting, a trusting, a committing, a ceasing, a delighting. God is over all of this. The Christian begins to live as God intended life to be lived and as God intends life to be enjoyed in him here on earth with God himself being the fulfillment of it for you, with God himself being the source of rest and comfort and uh, satisfaction for your soul. And you're, you're being now the man and woman that God made you to be, living your life in fellowship and communion with him. In Christ, you can live in comfort and rest and peace and enjoy, even in the midst of the persecution that comes. And that aspect is not going to be swept under the carpet, as we'll see next week. But you're the Lord's people in the Lord's world, living the Lord's way, doing the Lord's work. The meek, those who live in glad submission to the Lord, will inherit the earth. And those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they shall be filled. The sign of healthy life is a healthy appetite. Illness is frequently accompanied by a loss of appetite. I remember as a teenager waking up one Monday morning, it was a school day, looking at my clock and it was half past 11, middle of the, middle of the day. And I woke up with a start and jumped out of bed and ran down to, ran down to her, mum, mum, it's half 11, why, why have you left me in bed? You really weren't feeling too good yesterday, were you? Hmm. Now you mention it, no, not really. How did you know? Well, you, you didn't really eat very well at lunchtime, and that's not me. And you ate nothing when you came in in the evening. You had no supper, you just went straight up to bed, and that's not me. And you were asleep in no time at all, and we came and, and looked at you, and you actually had quite a temperature. So we just left you to sleep this morning because we knew something wasn't right. And I never slept in till half past 11, so something wasn't right. <laughs> no appetite, you see. Gave it away. Illness is frequently accompanied by loss of appetite. And usually a healthy life is marked by having a healthy appetite. Spiritually, the sign of spiritual health. What is it? Well, it's that we are hungry for and we are turning to that which we know will quench and satisfy. 
in our sinfulness, we turn to all of the things that we find in the world around us. We turn to those things which do, in a way, gratify sinful lusts and desires. In those things, people do find a certain kind of fulfilment, yet remain empty and constantly craving more. And even when they get more, find that still they are empty. Jesus said to the woman at the well, that if you will drink of the water that I will give you, you will never thirst again. Jesus said to his disciples that he is the bread of life and whoever comes to him will never hunger or die and whoever believes on him will never thirst. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to hunger and thirst for Christ and for that which is found only in Christ and to be filled and to find that satisfaction that your soul so needs. To receive in the depth of your soul the assuring witness of God's spirit that you belong to him. This is to be the continual and perpetual state of the Christian believer. To be in Christ, to be joined to Christ in sorrow and mourning over your sin, but then to be filled by him. To know that all is well in your soul in Christ. And on the basis of that, to live out his righteousness as the fruit of his spirit grows within you, and as his word produces fruit within you. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to seek out all that God is and all that God has for you in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul prays for Christians in Ephesians chapter 3 that they may know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now let me tell you, if you are filled with all the fullness of God, you lack nothing. There's a great hymn that has these words. O Christ in thee, my soul has found and found in thee alone the peace the joy I sought so long, the bliss till now unknown, none now but Christ can satisfy. None other name for me. There's love and life and lasting joy, Lord Jesus, found in thee. Number five. Verse 7, the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. It's really important to remember Jesus is addressing his disciples. He's not preaching evangelistically. This message is not, you be merciful and God in return will be merciful to you. 
you just go out there and you be as merciful as you possibly can be. And perhaps if you're merciful enough, God will be merciful to, to you. It can't be that, can it? That would be salvation by works. When we can never be sufficiently good to merit God's grace or favour. No, this is similar to the way that Jesus teaches us to pray in the next chapter. Forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. Those who receive mercy from God will undergo such a change of heart and mind that they themselves will become merciful towards others just as God has shown mercy to them. Remember some of the parables that Jesus told about someone who'd been forgiven and then refused to show that same kind of forgiveness to someone else? Those who obtain mercy from God are those who themselves are merciful. Why? Because in being merciful, they are demonstrating that God has been merciful to them. They are demonstrating that they are his people. They are demonstrating that their life is hid with God in Christ. This is the outpouring of God's abundant mercy towards you, that you now are merciful to others. You cannot be born again and receive all these blessings and benefits which you receive in Christ and then carry on living as if nothing's happened. If you are living as, not, as if nothing's happened, then that's because nothing's happened. Yet. Maybe today. You can't be in Christ and carry on living as though nothing's happened. It's impossible. Who is this man's neighbour? asked Jesus at the end of the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, the one who did something for him. Go and do likewise. But of course in the parable, the priest and the Levite had not done that. The people you might expect who would. But why not? The clear implication is that despite their outward appearance, they did not know God as they should. They weren't right on the inside. And so they weren't right on the outside. But those who know God, those who are united to God in Christ, well, you will. You must. You can't help yourself. You have this new life in Christ within you. And God has wrought such a work of grace and mercy within you, filling you with all the fullness of God. How can you not be merciful? You will obtain mercy. And that will show itself because you yourself will show such mercy to others. Well, just two more left. Is this your life that's being described here? Do you have this living testimony of God's grace and mercy for all to see? Is your, is your wife thinking, yeah, this is him. 
Is your husband thinking, yeah, this is her? Are your children thinking, yeah, that's my mum and dad? The pure in heart, verse 8. For they shall see God. Now you might suppose on hearing the word pure that what is meant here is holiness and being without sin. Now it goes without saying that wanting to have a heart in which there is no taint of sin should be the desire of every Christian. Wanting to be rid of sin should be something that's very great within us all. But that's actually not the meaning here in this particular verse because the word pure is rather as we would speak of pure gold in the sense that it is 100% gold and it isn't mixed with anything else. It hasn't been alloyed in any way. The sense of it here is to have a heart which belongs to God and to God alone. We sang that hymn earlier, Be Thou My Vision. Naught be all else to me, save what thou art. Let everything else be nothing to me except what you are. That actually is what this is talking about, being pure in heart. Later on in that hymn, thou and thou only first in my heart. That's the sense of this being pure in heart. To love the Lord with all your heart in such a way that there are no other loves which detract or get in the way. A heart unmixed in love and devotion to God. So Psalm 86 verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Now, when we use the word unite, we're, not, we normally, we're normally thinking of multiple things coming together. But he said, no, unite my heart. Let every aspect of my heart, let every love and desire of my heart unite to fear you. Let all of my heart be about you and the fear of you with nothing else interfering. The pure in heart before God. A heart which doesn't have divided loves, divided passions, divided loyalties. I'm not sure we can say that about a certain politician whose picture's been on everyone's front page the last few days. No divided heart, no divided love, no divided loyalty. A heart which is singly devoted to the Lord, the pure in heart. That's when it is that God has truly established his rightful place within you then it is that you're seeing him as you should. And finally, the peacemakers. 
they will be called the sons of God. Well, what do we see in the world all all around us? Well, throughout his letters, the Apostle Paul, on a number of occasions, gives us long lists of evidences and types of sins and the outworking of sin. He, He does it in the opening chapters of Romans. We'll have another one this evening. He does it in a number of his other letters. Envy, lack of forgiveness, spitefulness, holding grudges, bitterness, covetousness, being ready to exploit others for personal gain, unfaithfulness and betrayal, broken promises, lies and deceit, lack of integrity, pride and ambition, greed, impatience, jealousy. Do those things tend towards peace in the world? You know they don't. They only divide. They only cause frictions. They cause wars. They cause lifelong animosity. Sometimes between those who once were friends. And for decades now, they've never spoken to each other. Huge rifts in families. Seemingly never to be healed. Because of all that's pent up within the sinful heart. No peace within yourself and certainly no peace for all the others who have to put up with you. But, but, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who mourn over their sin. Those who have humbled themselves in meekness before the Lord. Those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, which is only found in Christ. Those who are merciful. Those who are pure in heart. To be at peace with God. To have the peace of God within you. To have the righteousness and the mind of Christ to bear in your your conduct and all of your attitudes the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy and peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. And now you're a peacemaker. You're a peacemaker in your family. You're a peacemaker amongst your colleagues at work. You're a peacemaker in the church. If you are indeed a child of God in Christ Jesus, such shall be called the sons of God of God.